Most of you are aware that I am a lover or student of history. I, I love history and everything about history. Uh, that started from the time I was a little kid. Um, just was interested in history and studying history, but it wasn't really until I was in the sixth grade, I checked out a book from my school library that had a profound effect on how I looked at history. It was the book, The Diary of Anne Frank, and as I read it, it I was engrossed in not only the story of Anne, but in the story of the culture of what was happening around her. It was really the first time as a sixth grader, I guess probably 11 or 12, that I was introduced to what was going on in Nazi Germany in the late 30s and 40s, uh, the atrocities that were happening. Now, as a student of history, that book portrayed me or compelled me to, to study people. I, I, I love reading about the everyday people that lived out history, the everyday soldier, the everyday farmer, the husband and the wife, the, the people that walked through events in history and how they lived it, how they survived it. And so I love reading those kind of biographies and autobiographies and reading about Anne Frank and how she, she managed to go through such a tumultuous time of history and what happened to her life really uh, drew me in, but it also shocked me. I was shocked that in a country the size of Germany, now remember in 1938, Germany had over 80 million people, that in a country the size of Germany with 80 million people, 18 million soldiers, 80 million civilians, the type of atrocities that were described in Anne Frank's book, The Holocaust, The Concentration Camps, Kristallnacht, the, the stealing of the Jews' possessions, all of that blew me away for the first time. See, what I couldn't wrap my head around was, was why no one said anything. Why no one did anything? Did anybody speak up? I mean, I mean it had to be an understanding of, of starting in 1935, all of a sudden Jews became uh, un, uncommon citizens. They were not granted citizenship anymore. Their, their homes were taken from them. Their, their businesses were taken from them. They had to wear a star everywhere they went. And they weren't the only ones. There were also undesirables and, and gypsies and others that they, they considered that they were not human. They were subpar. And these weren't just people that lived out in another city or another town. These were Germans' neighbors. Some of these Jewish people had been in Germany for centuries and decades. And these people had grown up with them. They'd gone to school with them. They were their next-door neighbors. They were their friends. They were their co-workers. Some of them were family members. And as they saw them persecuted, as they saw them ushered away, eventually put into trains like cattle and herded off to work camps, which ended up being concentration camps, which ended up being death camps, what did the everyday German think? What did the everyday Germans say? I mean, those that lived near these concentration camps, they, all of them weren't out in the middle of nowhere. Some of them were industrial areas. And, and these trains every day full of human beings going by, seeing them, smelling them. These death camps with the smell of death wafting up into everything you see and do. Why didn't anybody do anything? Why are there not more Oscar Schindler stories or stories like the family that sheltered Anne Frank? Over 6 million Jews and 12 million innocents murdered in their midst. That number's hard for us to get our, our head around. As a kid, I remember thinking, does, does that just mean that Germans are evil? 
Were they evil people? I mean, Gunther, I come from German descent. I had relatives, extended relatives that were in Germany and that fought for Germany in World War I and World War II. Were my relatives evil? Were, was there something inside of them that was intrinsically bad that, that caused them not to speak up, to not say something? You know, after the war, they all gave great excuses. We didn't know what could we have done? But in reality, as you study history, you realize they chose not to know. So they chose to close their eyes. They chose to ignore and go about their lives while this atrocity was happening. Now, before you start casting stones, and it's easy for us to do 75 years later, before we start looking down on them and, and thinking how bad they are, ask yourself this, what would you have done? Would you have said anything? Would you have done anything? Would you have made a stand? Would you have risked your security and your safety of your home and, and your family to, to step out and speak for those who were being persecuted? And the Bible tells us in Psalms 139 that, that we are 31, 8 and 9, that we are called to speak out for those who can't speak. We are, we are compelled to speak for those that are powerless to speak for themselves. So I like to think that surely in a 10-year time frame where 12 million men, women, and children were being murdered, I, I might have stood up. I might have said something. But in reality, we probably would have been quiet. In reality, we probably wouldn't have said a word. We know that because since 1973 in the United States of America, when the Supreme Court passed Roe versus Wade, abortion was made the legal law of the land. And in that time, more than 50 million babies have been killed, murdered, aborted, whatever term you want to use. That's five times the number of people who were killed in the Holocaust. Five times the number that were killed in what we consider the greatest genocide to ever happen. Now, I know 50 million, it's one of those numbers that it's tough to wrap our head around it. When you say 50 million, we, we can't even conceive of that number. So sometimes when we throw these numbers out, it's easy for it just to go over our head and for us just to ignore it because, you know, 50 million is so many, we can't grasp it. Let me help you understand a little bit about that. 50 million is the combined total population of 25 states in the United States of America. 50 million. Can you imagine 25 states, the total population, just ceasing to exist? 25 states full of people, men, women, and children, just gone. 50 million people. That averages out in abortions in the United States of America to about one abortion every 20 seconds. That means in the, the hour that we are going to be in this service that 180 abortions have happened. That, that's more than are in this room today. That means in the time that I'm speaking, in the time that we were singing, more babies were aborted than are sitting in this room today. Wrap your head around that. See if we can't grasp the truth. Around the world there are over 43 million abortions that take place every year. That's 115,000 abortions a day. And I have to stand in front of you this morning and say, we're not doing enough. And I have to admit, I haven't done enough. 
Matter of fact, I, I'm embarrassed to say that I've been guilty, as the video said, of being silent. Now, I, I, I'm pro-life. I, I, I tell people I'm pro-life. But for 28 years as a minister, this is the very first time that I have ever formally taught about this subject, formally addressed this subject from a pulpit, from a teaching standpoint. 28 years. Now, as a student minister, I, I counseled many pregnant mothers and, and unwed teenagers and their families. And, and I can't tell you how many people over the years I, I've cared for and I've cried with and I've comforted that have gone through the abortion process. Mothers and fathers and boyfriends and girls. But I've never stood in front of a congregation or in front of a group of people and talked about why abortion is so horrendous. See, it's easy for us to, to say we're pro-life, but what does that mean? I've always made excuses. It's a political issue. It's a complex issue. It, it, it's, you know, too divisive to bring up in church. It's too divisive to talk about. But what God has shown me through the years, and especially in the last couple of years, that it is so vital for us to discuss because it is at the core of the disintegration of the meaning of life in our culture. Abortion is so important that of all the cultural issues that we're going to talk about, it poses the clearest and most pressing danger than all the others combined. Because you see, what abortion has done in the United States of America is it has desensitized us to how precious life is. We live in a culture today where life is not worth a tennis shoe if someone wants that tennis shoe. We live in a culture today where we blink our eyes and ignore deaths by the hundreds because it's just a statistic. We know now that it's not an ambiguous issue. It's not a political issue. It's not complex. As a matter of fact, it's very clear. It is a spiritual and moral issue. And as believers of Jesus Christ, if we say we worship the God that treasured life so very much and being so precious that he willingly sent his only son to give up his life to redeem that life, then we have to do something. We have to do more. You know what got me this summer is those videos on Planned Parenthood were released. The disgusting and graphic nature of the videos were bad enough, but really what broke my heart was just seeing the collective shrug of shoulders by the United States as a whole. It happens. What can we do about it? Oh, well. You see, what I believe is that we've become so desensitized that we're no longer even shocked. No longer takes us off guard. If you go back and study history, even in our history in America or even in Nazi Germany, you'll see that the way they convinced the populace, the way they convinced the people that, that life didn't mean anything, was they began through media and propaganda to dehumanize certain races and certain groups, including the Jews in Nazi Germany. You see, they began to, to show movies and talk about them in books, and they began to educate their children that Jewish people were, were not real humans. They were subhuman. They were less than humans. It's the same thing they're doing in Muslim countries today. 
They're like animals. And so if you are raised and hear and believe that for so long, you become desensitized and it assuages your guilt. You, you don't feel guilty killing them or seeing them persecuted or seeing them lose their home because they're not really humans. They're not like you and I. We did the same thing in the South. Southern Christians justified their involvement in slavery by saying those of African-American descent were not real humans. They're not real men and women just like us. They're less than us. And the Supreme Court confirmed that because it made Christians be able to pat themselves on the back and go to bed at night knowing they were committing an atrocity because they convinced themselves that it wasn't real. We did the same thing to the Native Americans. Go back and read some of the media of the day. The only good Indian is a dead Indian. Indians are not, they're not human. They're like animals. They're savages. You see, they introduce that term savages because, you see, if you don't think of them as people, it's easy to say, it's okay if we wipe them out. It's okay if we wipe out their villages because they're not really people. And you see, when you begin to take certain groups and dehumanize them, what it does is it allows us to justify our behavior. And we've done the same thing for the unborn children. You hear people that justify abortion that never, ever, ever say that in the womb it's a baby. Because you see, to say that it's a baby makes it a person. So we say things like it's a, it's a clump of cells. It, it's just a, a, a fleshy mass in there. They introduce the term fetus. Because you can say fetus, right? Because that, that doesn't sound human. That doesn't sound like we, what we gave birth to or what we raised. It's a fetus. It's clinical. It's clean. Dehumanizes. Objectifies. I've never heard anybody say that they were going to have a fetus shower. They were celebrating the birth of a fetus. Why? Because it's a baby. Fetus is a term used to dehumanize, and it's allowed us to ignore. It's allowed us to turn a deaf ear to what's going on in that environment. It's allowed us to, to feel good about ourselves living in a culture and in a nation that justifies murder. Now, those things might have flown prior to 1973. In 1973, we didn't know if it was a clump of cells. In 1973, we really didn't know what was going on. But since then, science has grown in leaps and bounds and the, the incredible work in sonograms, pre-birth study, it has exploded and all of those arguments are now mute because what we've discovered that through sonograms is, is that life is so incredibly dynamic even at the first moment of conception. At eight weeks, at eight weeks, I want you to think about this. That, that's in the first trimester, eight weeks. Most women don't even know they're pregnant, don't even barely have a baby bump. Some do, most don't. They're still throwing up. It's still the first trimester. Sonograms have shown us that at eight weeks, a baby, will, an unborn baby, will respond to sound outside of the womb. They'll clap their hands. They'll jump when they hear a sound. At eight weeks, they feel pain. How do we know that? Because we've seen in sonograms that when doctors have gone in with a needle to take blood from the heel of an unborn baby, that baby will recoil its heel in pain, feeling that. Eight weeks. At eight weeks, we've seen babies that suck their thumbs. We know that all of their major organs are functioning. Their heart is 
beating, it's pumping. Their brain is sending signals and receiving signals. Their liver is functioning. Their kidneys are functioning. The baby at eight weeks has a unique fingerprint. The baby has a unique blood type. It has a unique DNA. But yet 85% of all abortions happen after that point. At 21 weeks, with the medical technology we have today and a little help, a baby can viably live outside of the womb. Yet over a million abortions happen every year after 21 weeks. I know this is where people say, yeah, but pastor, what about in extenuating circumstances? What about in rape? Or what about for the health of the mother, for protection of the mother? And those are complex issues. But let's just be honest. If you go and look at the statistic, less than 2% of all abortions come because of the health of the mother or because of a circumstantial situation. 2%. So 98% of the murdered babies in America take place out of convenience. Take place out of a form of birth control. Take place because they decide they don't want a baby. They decide they can't afford it or a partner decides they don't want to take part. 98% convenience. Science is very clear. It proves that this is a precious life. It proves that it has its own DNA. It proves it has its own genetic makeup. It has its own fingerprint. It has its own future. It has its own dreams. Science is clear that, that this is a person and they are legally being murdered. But, you know, as Christians, we don't need science. Science is just confirming what the Bible's always taught. The Bible is very clear and has been very clear that that baby inside of a womb is a unique creation. Listen to what David said in Psalms 139. For you created me in my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You, you knit me together. You knew where I was. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Not a clump of cells. Not an accident. That God's handiwork is there in the womb of a mother. My frame was not hidden from you from when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your, your eyes saw my unformed body. Before even I was conceived, you were a part of it. God had a plan. What was that plan? He said, all of the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Bible, you know, people say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about abortion. You know, the Bible doesn't use the word abortion, but it does talk about the murder of innocent life. It does talk about how God is the giver of life. It does talk about how that baby in the womb is a person. And it also mentions that life is precious to God. Jeremiah 1 5, the prophet, listen to what it says. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart, and I anointed you as a prophet to the nations. He says before twice there. Why? As indication that before you were even thought of, God had a plan. Before your parents even knew you were something, I had a plan. He used the term I four times in those two verses. Why? To indicate that God was not only the one who was writing this, but God is the creator. That God is the one who brings life. And he used the term you. Why? Because he didn't say, I formed it. He said, I formed you because it's a person. It was Jeremiah, and God said, I have a plan for you. You see, we need to understand this morning, we need to recognize that the pre-born, the unborn are people, that they are pre-known, that they are prized. He said, I set you apart, and they have a purpose. 
I can't imagine over the last 42 years how many doctors we've murdered, how many housewives, how many citizens. Maybe a doctor that was supposed to cure cancer. Maybe a doctor that was supposed to cure Alzheimer's. Maybe a person that was supposed to usher in world peace. Maybe the next Billy Graham. And and for the sake of convenience, we've washed them away. Who knows what God had planned? What we stole. The Bible's clear. Science is clear. According to what I read in Proverbs 31, somebody has to speak up for those that can't speak for themselves. I find it interesting that if you paid attention this summer when those videos came out that because science is so clear the argument has kind of changed from those that justify abortion it's twisting because now they can't argue that it's not a baby I mean in those videos they were selling baby parts whole baby parts they can't argue that that in that womb even all the way back to eight weeks is not a formed human being so they've switched it now and so the argument has kind of changed you see now what it is is it's all about a woman's right to choose women say I, I have a right to choose no we don't have the right to choose who lives and dies because you see when a woman says I have the right to choose what they are saying is I have the right to choose what life matters and what life doesn't and we don't have that power God is the giver of life and listen to me because once this is the danger once we begin to assign that power to you and I we can't handle it Once we begin to assign that power to a government, once we begin to tell the government, you decide who has a right to live and die, God's right, who's next? You and I get to decide if we have a right to choose who lives and dies, who's next? What, the elderly? They're old. They don't have any use anymore in society. What about the mentally handicapped? What about the physically disabled? What do they bring to society? What about the poor? What about people we don't like? Say, Pastor, you're just running wild with this. No, that's how it happened in Germany. Because you see, once you take that right and say, God, you are the creator, but I'm going to choose which creation gets to live and which creation doesn't, which is basically what they say when they say, I have a right to choose. We're headed down a slippery slope that is dangerous for all of us. They, they say, well, and here's the argument I love. It's my body. I can do what I want to with it. Problem is, the unborn baby inside of you is not part of your body. It's not a kidney. It has its own DNA. It, has, it may be in your body, but it's, it's not a part of your body. It is a separate entity. It has its own fingerprint. It has its own heartbeat. It has its own dreams. It has its own genetic code. It may be inside of you, but it's not part of your body. And, and where did we get the idea that we have a right to do with whatever we want to our body? Can you do whatever you want to your body? Because if you can, you need to go let the women that are in jail for prostitution know. Because they were told they didn't have a right to do what they wanted with their body. If we have a right to do with our body, why do we go and stop people that are trying to commit suicide, that are standing on ledges? Why, when someone tries to harm their body, do we put them in a hospital? Do we try to get them medical and mental health? If we just have a right to do what we want with our bodies, we don't. 
You think you have a right to do whatever you want to your body? Then when you leave here, go get in your car, take all your clothes off, and drive naked down the road 95 miles an hour. And when they pull you over, say, listen, I've got a right to do what I want with my body. See if they buy that argument. But somehow we've decided that we will grant the right for us to murder innocent, unborn babies. So what do we do? If science says this is a baby, if the Bible says this is a baby, and we can say that a million of them are being murdered, what are you and I, is it, what, what more to be pro-life can we do to say that lives matter? Well, I'm going to close, just give you a couple things, a couple thoughts. First of all, you and I need to learn to offer grace and forgiveness to those who need it. We need to recognize that abortion is a sin, but it's forgivable. See, it's one thing to speak out against the moral concerns of our society, but we also have to offer love and compassion to those who need help. I've, I've been in a living room with women who have gone through abortion. I've seen the pain. I've seen the scars. And we need to be very careful with our rhetoric and understand that we've got to offer grace and mercy and love. Statistics tell us that overwhelmingly, almost 90% of all women who go through abortions suffer mental and physical and emotional scars for the rest of their life. And that's not mentioning the, the boys that were involved and the moms and dads or, or the friends that were involved. We need to be about offering forgiveness and grace and mercy and be a place of peace for people that are struggling with their life choices. Now, now I understand, listen, I understand any time you talk about abortion, there may be some of you in here that have had abortions. And, and I, I know this had to be a horribly hard message to listen to. But my prayer for you is that you receive and embrace God's forgiveness and God's overwhelming love and support and blessings on you. See, we need to be a place of grace. Yes, we need to stand up for life. We need to stand against these things that are coming into our culture. But we've also got to support people that are struggling. The second thing that we need to do, we need to watch our attitudes. We need to remember that Satan is the enemy of life, not doctors not politicians, not people that are out protesting or people who are in favor of abortions. The enemy is Satan. We learn from Ephesians that our battle is not flesh and blood, but it's against principalities. And, and I worry that it's way too easy for us to become self-righteous and smug and condemning. And we tend to get so angry and judgmental to people who sin differently than we do. We need to be very careful how we respond. We need to build bridges to those who are out there needing help instead of putting barriers up. The third thing we need to do, we need to balance our prophetic and our priestly roles as Christians. See, as Christians we have two roles. Prophetically, we're to stand up for the Word of God and, and we need to speak up and we need to recognize society's views on abortion are changing. That, that's the good news. If you look at statistics and, and, and this summer didn't help 
those that are for abortion, because statistically the next generation is coming out more pro-life than the generations before. But we need to be patient and understand it takes time. And as we do that, we need to learn to speak out. We need to be prophetic, but we also need to be priestly, offering grace and mercy and love. You see, we need to remember that our number one primary call as a Christian is to make disciples, not win arguments. We need to find balance in how we communicate it. We need to stay informed. We need to pray for those that are unborn. Stay informed. Learn what's going on. And let me just say this. It, it's not a political issue. But since it is the law of the land, you and I need to find out what the people we are voting for and supporting believe. Somebody says, oh, but pastor, that's just one issue. It's one issue that you and I are going to stand before God and give an account for. See, God's not going to ask me when I stand before him, did you support and encourage by your vote those that killed unborn babies? Or did you vote for more taxes? Or did you vote for more money back in your pocket? See, all those things are important, but they don't matter. What matters to me is do you support life? And if you don't support life, I don't want to know that my vote went to support you. It's that important. Learn what's going on. Become educated. It's time we open our eyes. You see, it's so easy to sit over and say, it's not my issue and it's not my deal. And I don't want to know. That's exactly what happened in Germany. It is your issue as a follower of Jesus Christ. We need to be consistently pro-life. We'll talk more about that next week. I'm going to continue this, not about abortion, but what it means to be pro-life. That means we need to be pro-life in everything, value to all human life, the pre-born, the orphans, the widows, the physically challenged, the emotionally challenged, the homeless, the hungry, the poor, those that are in prison. We need to be pro-life in everything that we do. It's not enough just to say, well, I'm against abortion. No, I am pro-life. Why? Because the Bible says life is precious in every form. We need to be consistently pro-life. And the last thing, we need to support those organizations that support life. You and I need to be about helping organizations that are encouraging life. We locally hope pregnancy clinic. Go and volunteer. Give your money. Give your time. Children's homes. Those that are working with adoption. Support those things. Because you see, it's one thing for us to say that we need to stop abortion. It's another for us to say we are providing alternatives to that. And we are doing everything we can to support that. You see, listen, in Nazi Germany, there was one who spoke up. I've told you before, one of my heroes in the faith, someone that, that had a profound effect, effect on me in college, reading all of his journals and, and his, his writing was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he was a, a, a pastor that when World War II broke out over in Europe, he was in America studying, he was a theologian, and he said, I've got to go back to Germany and be there to pastor my people that are going to be in turmoil. And all of his friends in America said, no, stay here. You'll be safe here. He said, I've got to go back. And he went back into Nazi Germany, was not a member of the Nazi party, he stood up in his pulpit, and he preached against what was happening in his country. And he was warned time and time and time again. His friends begged him. Other pastors who remained silent said, Listen, Bonhoeffer, you've got to be quiet. They'll kill you. He said, If I die, I die. But I cannot live silent. So in the last years of the war, 1944, he was finally arrested. They finally had enough. And they put him in a concentration camp. In the last days of World War II, as 
The concentration camp he was in was about to be liberated as the Allies pressed in. Bonhoeffer's name was on a list of people that were not allowed. They, they were to be killed before they were ever to be liberated. So he was lined up with others and hung two days before the concentration camp he was in was liberated. And among his writings, this quote was found. Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Let's pray.